Welcome fellow backpackers to episode two of Where Next, a podcast that brings you the origin stories and explores the architecture of the countries we visit. I'm your host Jack Thompson from Backpackers Blueprint and today we're going to be taking on Guatemala. I'm really looking forward to this one as for me it was one of the countries that I felt like I'd truly stepped away from standard tourism and entered a world of backpacking. Myself and two friends at the time crossed into Guatemala through the El Cibo border from Mexico, which is a slightly unusual passage. However, COVID restrictions at the time meant that Belize was closed to us. Fortunately, this was or is now not an issue, but um, the border crossing was super easy back then with some very quick checks. And uh, once in Guatemala, we exchanged some pesos into Quetzals, uh, the local currency, before finding a shuttle that took us to Flores. The shuttle itself looked like a beat-up old minivan. Travelling with the two friends I just mentioned, we jumped on board this tiny small shuttle filled up with locals carrying groceries, books and anything and everything in between. It was hot and I mean hot, I mean no AC to cool you down, just windows fully open. The journey to Flores was around four hours down the road and um, a pastor even jumped on at one stop and took the opportunity to read the bible to everyone um on this really cramped squeezed bus um to give you an idea of how just how far off it felt we were from the travel trail here the lady sitting on the bus next to me asked if she could have a picture taken with me so i accepted and um, we continued down the road Um, these seats were more like planks of wood effectively and by the time we got to Flores I was super grateful to actually have the the ability to stand up and walk about. Um, So we're going to explore Guatemala today and what a beautiful country it is. It's got a interesting kind of similar-ish origin story from our previous episode Mexico where we're going to go through the Mayan cultures before the Spanish conquistadors and then beyond that we're going to have a look at some of the modern issues that Guatemala has and it does have issues but we're going to touch on those briefly um, because I don't want to I do not want to detract sorry from just how incredible this country is and you really should visit it if you ever get the opportunity so Enough of that. Let's uh, let's get into this. So during the course of this podcast, we're going to look at the historical site of Tikal. We're going to understand the effects of the Spanish through Guatemala and what happened. We're going to look at the importance of the country's landscape, um, particularly Semic Champe and Lake Atalan, before we go on to talk about natural disasters like earthquakes, volcanic eruptions on those same cities. And we're going to talk about the formation of various other places like Antigua, um, which is one of the most beautiful towns you will or cities you will ever visit. Um, so let's let's go. To get an idea of Guatemala's landscape. The country is an unusual shape, with land borders to Mexico in the north, Belize and Honduras in the east, and El Salvador in the south. Guatemala has a coastline on the North Pacific and a small section of coastline on the Caribbean Sea between Belize and Honduras. The key places for backpackers or explorers are usually Flores, Lake Atalan, El Paradon, and Antigua. Last time we found out that the Mayan civilization was sighted from modern day Mexico all the way down to Guatemala, Belize, El Salvador, Honduras and even a bit in Nicaragua. 
We found out that these cities were independent of each other with no overall ruler, but each city did have an independent nobility and we discovered that cities had established trade routes. It's worth noting for the avoidance of doubt that the great cities were not inhabited by common people. This class of people were predominantly farmers and they lived around the edges and in the forests, in forest huts and only went to the great city centres for ritual events or markets and that was largely kept an eye on through their, their 260 day Zolkin calendar which we mentioned last time. The history of Guatemala is a lot less complex than its neighbouring Mexico, as the majority of the indigenous groups were of Mayan origin, with the exception being the Pipil, who were a Nuaya group related to the Aztecs. The Pipil had a number of small city-states along the Pacific coastline of southern Guatemala and El Salvador. So let's step back in time here to one of the most important sites in Guatemala. Let's go to the origin story of Tikal begins in the formative period with historians giving the dates of around 1000 BC for people inhabiting the area generally. The site of Tikal is buried deep in the thick Guatemalan jungle in what's called the Peten region. Although the site has origins that date back to the Mayan formative years, it rose to prominence in the Classic Era, that timeline of 200 AD to 900 AD, before it became one of the cities that would effectively disappear until being discovered again in the 19th century. The Mayans were big on theatre and Tikal was no exception. It's currently believed that the structures were aligned to the stars and constellations and that they used their dating systems to predict solar eclipses, which is incredible. Tikal has some of the most beautiful temples you will ever see and right at the centre of this massive complex you'll find temples 1 and 2 which you may have seen from numerous Instagram photos. These two temples face each other and are flanked on each side by an acropolis. This creates a large courtyard or central plaza which is symbolic of the present or the earth in which we live. The Acropolis were the final resting places of the ruling elite and there's a lot of symbolism with the way things are orientated and the North Acropolis was positioned there to be a representation of the sky, the pyramid shape of these incredible temples were to connect humans or bodies to the sky and anything subterranean was meant to be linking you to the afterlife or the underworld. Temple 1 is also known as the temple of the great jaguar. Jaguars were super important to the Maya and this massive lintel is effectively a representation of a body of a jaguar with a king sitting upon it. It's believed to date back to around 732, 732 AD, which is remarkably close to the demise of Tikal. The Great Jaguar Temple is unique in that it faces west, unlike most other temples which face east to the rising sun. Effectively, these temples or the structures were made up of four parts. A Great Pyramid, acting as a podium for the temple, so you've got a, a pyramid, imagine the top of the pyramid being cut off for a rectilinear temple to sit on top. 
and then on top of the temple you had something called a roof comb which is effectively a large wall and the large wall acted as a canvas for stucco and the stucco could in turn be carved and shaped to form sculptural elements on top which were finely painted. The final part is the crypt which is out of sight and below ground. Just off the main square of Tikal was a poker toke court. Now this is the mine ball game that you may have heard of where the ball had to be kept off the ground and shot through a hoop using just the thighs and the hips. I won't go into it too much but there were sacrificial and ritualistic elements attached to the game which, and funnily enough, nobody knows if the people who won or lost the game were those who were sacrificed. So just beyond the central acropolis were the palaces and the admin centres and these were more horizontally built rather than vertically with smaller courtyard spaces. So if you can almost begin to imagine in your mind's eye these incredible triangular structures pointing upwards with these kind of more horizontal palaces beyond them where the nobility would have lived. Beyond the main city centre, as mentioned earlier at the start, you'll find the smaller villages of jungle huts where the agricultural workers would have lived and worked. These have unfortunately been taken back by the jungle and you can't really see or visit them. If you want a lesson in sustainable architecture, that's probably it right there. Uh, anyway, however, you will also be able to see a reconstruction version or a reconstructed version of them in the Museo de Anthropologia in Mexico City if you did want to visit that museum. If you are visiting Tikal, then you'll likely visit for one of three times sunrise, midday or sunset. A top tip here is if you go for sunrise it will be really quiet and if you are able to walk quickly over te to temple 4 you'll be able to watch the sunrise from the top of the temple and likely you will have it pretty much on your own. Temple 4 is one of the largest buildings in the Mayan Mesoamerica landscape. You are, as I say, able to climb to the top of the structure to take in the mesmerizing view across the dense jungle with just the tops of the temples from the Tikal sites peeking back over at you from over the canopy. The pyramid was completed around, or this pyramid, Temple 4, was completed around 741-741 AD and that has been precisely dated thanks to carbon dating of the wooden lintels which support the corbelled templed arches and the comb above. Tikal is believed to have traded and dealt with Copan, which is in modern day Honduras, and it was also believed to have traded all the way north to Teotihuacan at the site of Texacoco, which we spoke of in the first episode. So now we have dressed one of the most incredible Mayan cities of the Mesoamerican pre-Columbian period. Let's move slightly forward in time. As mentioned in the first episode, Tikal would hit a decline post 900 AD in what is known as the collapse of the classic Maya. The Maya that did continue to thrive would largely be in the Yucatan, Mexico area. Tikal, however, would disappear to the extent that when the Spanish began to come from the north, battling each city as they went down, they would miss Tikal in its entirety, totally unaware of its existence. How crazy 
is that although when you do visit the site it is very well buried so I guess you could perhaps work out why if there are not many people in that area you could quite easily walk past it and miss it due to the way the jungle has taken it back. It would not be until 1848 that the ruins would be discovered by an expedition commissioned by the Guatemalan government. The Spanish would effectively do what they did in Mexico. As we know, Hernán Cortés would lead the Spanish conquistadors and in 1524 he sent Cristobal de Olid by sea to Honduras, we'll pick up his story in a different episode, and a gentleman called Pedro de Alvarado down through the Pacific coast to conquer all that stood in his way. Alvarado would have little resistance down the Pacific coast, however, on the eastern side of the country, one spot and a place that you are likely to visit if you do go to Guatemala Antical, the little island town of Flores, proved to be the definition of resistance. Known today as a beautiful little town in the middle of an island on Lake Peten, Flores is a rite of passage for most backpackers as you travel down or up through Central America. However, in 1524, Flores was known as Norpeten and was the capital of the Peten Itza, a Mayan kingdom. The Mayan site dated back to circa 900 BC and it would become something of a stubborn point that the conquistadors would ignore and come back to. And remarkably, Hernán Cordoba would visit the small island before heading to Honduras and you'll see why I say remarkably shortly but Noyapetén would be the last Mayan city to be taken by the Spanish in 1697. The Itza people were left alone by the Spanish until 1617 when missionaries peacefully approached the leader or Akanek of Noyapetén. The talks of conversion would fail but the Spanish would not give up visiting again in 1618. This time, the hospitality of the Akanek would be seen as unfavourable by the local priests, who would cause a revolt and the Spanish visitors would be banished. A few more attempts to take Noya Petén happened, and they would end in a very gory way, with Spanish heads effectively being displayed on sticks. I will not go into any more detail than that on that. However, the final meeting of the Itza people and the Spanish army would happen in 1967. The Spanish would be ordered to take Noyapetan once and for all. They set up on the banks of the lake in a village of Chich. Here, they would build a boat and equip it with cannons and men before rowing it across the lake and the Maya Itza's bows and arrows would just be no match at all for the Spanish firepower. And this would put an end to the tense and resistant chapter of Maya versus Spain. The island of Noyapetén would be rebranded as Nuestra Señora de los Ramitos y San Pueblo Laguna de Liza, or Our Lady of Remedy and St. Paul Lake of the Itza. 
During this time, Alvarado would rip through the Pacific coast with relative ease, taking out one town after another, starting with Zapotitlan in February 1524, before heading to the Kichi region, an area around Lake Atitlan. If you do take the traditional backpacker's path, then you will likely end up in Lake Atitlan. And whilst it's regarded as one of the most beautiful lakes in the world, you will not find beautiful architecture here. The Spanish didn't really create towns here. And because of that, you'll end up in modern towns that have been built effectively for modern day tourism. But back to the Spanish and the Kichi region. In the Kichi region, Alvarado in 1524 would still encounter resistance from the indigenous peoples. The Quachiquel and the Kichimaya, who inhabited the areas around Quetzalcoatl, fiercely resisted the Spanish forces until the Battle of Utzadlan in 1524, which marked a decisive moment in the Spanish conquest of this region. Just south of Lake Atalan, you'll find the town of Ishme. This was conquered in 1524 and would effectively become the first Spanish capital. However, this would be moved not once but twice. First because of an uprising from the indigenous people and the second time due to a natural disaster, the volcano de Agua, which would be effectively Guatemala's very own version of Pompeii. As a result, the capital would be moved to where we find it today in present Antigua. So I'm going to use this opportunity to now to talk about this wonderful gem of a city, Antigua. So with the Spanish city planning, we see cathedrals and important political buildings at the centre, surrounding a grand central plaza with linear roads coming off of the plaza, courtyard style houses that front up to the streets before urban sprawl to the less notable homes before the countryside, countryside starts to take over. Antigua would be home to the Spanish colony army of Guatemala for more than 200 years. There are cathedrals and churches dotted all around Antigua, some of which have taken heavy damage due to numerous earthquakes which tend to plague Guatemala. However, because of this, you are able to really find a rich layering from the 16th century to the 18th century that baroque style that we are now familiar with the flamboyant biblical representation or as i like to think of it wedding cake architecture but my goodness it is pretty is extensive across antigua it's kind of hard to imagine what guatemala would look like today if the spanish had not invaded would the architecture of the mine have developed and changed and if so to what extent and where would it be today and what would it look like? But I, I guess there's no point in speculating with this because we'll never actually really know. It's an interesting thought though, isn't it? Or is that just me? Now, when in Antigua, you're going to have a lot of places to explore and you'll really be able to see what I mean by the courtyard design of houses. Antigua is a fantastic example as no matter where you are, a restaurant, a hostel, a bar, you are often greeted at the street by large wooden doors that lead down a passage that opens up to the most beautiful courtyard space. 
The buildings from the outside are all beautifully painted in bright colours and as you walk down the streets you can get a great feel of how the courtyards act not only as a natural way to keep a property cool through the large roof overhangs and garden spaces but also as a privacy screen. Sitting in a well-maintained picturesque courtyard you have a little slice of paradise. The noise from the streets is muted and you feel safe behind the gated entrances. A quick aside, if you want some incredible dorm recommendations or just want some images of these courtyards then pop over to the Guatemala section on the Backpackers Blueprint web website and you'll be able to find some great images there. Head down to the Antigua section and you will be able to find them. When you do walk the streets, you're able to catch little glimpses of different courtyards and kind of see the way different people have designed them, causing a wonderful play of curiosity. Not only this, the streets frame the images of volcanoes on the skyline. And then as you walk a little further, you find yourself at a beautiful, well-kept and clean plaza with the most ornate Baroque church and a wonderful atmosphere surrounding it. You may be able to tell that this place left a mark on me and it truly did. I would go back in a second if I was given the opportunity. It felt like Antigua did everything well. Not just architecture, but bars, restaurants, accommodation. And on top of that, Antigua is also your starting point for the Akitenango and Fuego volcano expeditions. This is a two-day excursion and in the morning of day two, you are able to ascend the final part of Akatenango to summit at just below 4,000 feet. My GPS said 3998 to be precise and I really kind of wish I had a ladder with me to get that two extra feet, but you can't win them all. And anyway, we have digressed massively from the Spanish. However, we only have two more cities I would like to cover here. Uh, before we move on to the independence from the Spanish so we can actually arrive at the formation of the country of Guatemala because at this point we're still not technically a country. Quetzaltenango is a key city just to the northwest of Lake Atalan. The Spanish would eventually form a base here in May the 4th and use it as a strategic colonial outpost. The city became an important centre for trade and commerce, connecting coastal areas with the highlands. If you are into the path less travelled and want to get an insight to, let's say, the real Guatemala, then this will be a great place to do it, as you'll be way off the tourist trail and you'll be able to get into what it is to be a local and find things like pepien here, which is a local meaty stew that is effectively the national dish of Guatemala. The final city I would like to mention before we head to the formation of the Empire of Mexico and beyond that the Central American Federation is Guatemala City. This is just east of Antigua and became the new location of the capital of Guatemala as it was considered as a much more stable area over the earthquakes that had previously damaged Antigua. The capital is also less travelled and more of a point of where the airport is, but it is also home to some beautiful Spanish architecture. 
You will also find modern structures in Guatemala City as this today is the hotbed of the economy, but it does have an underbelly of issues with civil war being in its recent history, just before the turn of the millennia, but we'll go into that shortly. So let's go back now to the independence from the Spanish. As we mentioned in episode one, Hidalgo would start a call for independence from the Spanish way up in Mexico. This would come to a climax over a decade later when Central American leaders, including those from Guatemala, signed the Act of Independence of Central America. A gentleman called Agustin de Irtabide would be at the forefront of the uprising and he would further declare himself Emperor of Mexico calling himself Augustin I in 1822. He would not be able to unify the Mexican Empire and after some poor rulership, he would flee to Italy in 1823. This is when we find the formation of the Federal Republic of Central America. The Federal Republic of Central America faced continuous political and military conflicts, including civil wars, which would lead to its own disillusion in 1838. Several Central American states declared their independence from the Federation. By 1840, the Republic officially collapsed. And it's at this point we can say hello to the countries that are Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua and Costa Rica. Each nation developed its own political, economic and social institutions. These are the original Central American countries. If you've ever gone to Nicaragua and had a look at the coins, you'll be able to see five pyramids which represent these original five countries. But we'll talk more about Nicaragua in a different podcast episode. So we're now just a few hundred years back in time and Guatemala as the country we see today is now in existence. So let's finish up by talking about Guatemala from 1840 onwards. Initially, there would be a lot of unrest. The country would be strongly divided by two main schools of thought, the liberals and the conservatives, each part largely standing for what their name suggests. The liberals wanted greater equality and the conservatives wanted the church to retain the large extent of land and power. It's a story of repression and uprising as old as time. In the conservative corner would be Rafael Carrera, who after the Federal Republic collapsed would become the first de facto ruler of Guatemala. He was something of a dictator, however, he would defend Guatemala from advances from Mexico and William Walker, who we will learn about in the Nicaragua episode because William Walker would be a key player in shaping Nicaragua and various other regions in and around Central America. Carrera would die in 1865, but the conservative dictatorship would continue to dominate, fighting down occasional liberal uprisings. The architecture of this time would largely follow on from the Spanish city planning, design and materiality that we've seen before, but it would also start to evolve and change into a more neoclassical and romantic style. This is much less flamboyant than the Baroque that preceded it. Neoclassic tends to follow on from symmetry and has strong geometries over extensive embellishments which tend to disappear at this point. 
The National Palace of Guatemala is a fantastic example of neoclassical architecture and it was designed by Rafael Perez de Leon and Alejandro Villanova with construction starting in 1939 under President Jorge Obico. Shortly after 1939, in 1944, widespread discontent with the conservative regime led to what was called the October the 20th Revolution. Following this revolt, in 1951, a new leader, a new liberal leader, would be put into power through a vote, believe it or not, Jacob Arbenes would be elected president. His government introduced land reforms that sought to expropriate unused land from large estates and redistribute it to landless peasants. The issue being that it stepped on the toes of an outrageously powerful organisation, the United Fruit Company. The United Fruit Company had been established in Guatemala from around the turn of the 20th century and had extensive control of the land in Guatemala. And now, Arbenas was looking to take the land back and give it back to the people of Guatemala. In an absolutely unbelievable twist, the CIA would back a coup over the land reforms with the United Fruit Company being cited as a contributing factor to the funding of the coup. I will put a link in the footnotes of this episode to a CIA assassin assassination proposal document because reading through it for the research of this, it's just fascinating and pretty gobsmacking. So as you can imagine, following this coup, turmoil would dominate across Guatemala, but the United Fruit Company would have its final swan song in the 1970s. The Guatemalan government under President Carlos Emmanuel Arana Osorio took steps to nationalize the banana in industry, reducing the company's influence in the country. Although the country would be in a state of civil war, which erupted in 1960 following severe inequality issues, the conflict lasted for 36 years, making it one of the longest and most brutal civil wars in Latin American history. The civil war had a profound impact on Guatemala, leaving a legacy of trauma, human rights abuses and social divisions. The conflict disproportionately affected indigenous communities and issues related to land rights and justice still persist today. I mean, we're talking about this being in my lifetime now, so it, it was it's fairly recent history. Development would be eclectic with multiple styles, but generally much less grand architecture than we see of years gone by. As you can imagine, civil countries in civil war don't advance perhaps as quickly as others. In the 21st century, Guatemala has a lot of issues to overcome, including inequality, crime and climate. And you may have seen the efforts from companies like the Ocean Cleanup, who are removing vast amounts of plastic from Guatemala's rivers. However, Guatemala does have positives. It's still a great producer of fruits as well as coffee, cardamom and textiles. Modern buildings and even skyscrapers are appearing in the major cities with reconstruction and restoration programs also being implemented in cities. 
The country is also investing in infrastructure like better road networks, which you can really see if you take a shuttle from Flores to Samak Shambi. So now I just want to go on to a quick summary of what we've spoken about in the last 20 minutes or so, so you guys can explore wherever you are today. We've delved into the history of Guatemala from the Mayan civilization formation. We've highlighted Tikal as a significant Mayan site, providing insights into its architectural marvels and cultural significance. We covered the unique features of Tikal, such as temple alignments to stars, beautiful structures like the Great Jaguar Temple, and the city's decline after 900 AD. We then went on to the Spanish conquest and colonization of Guatemala, focusing on the resistance of Noyapetan, modern-day Flores, and the Spanish attempts to convert the indigenous population. We have explored the conflicts between the Spanish and Itza people, leading to the eventual conquest of Noyapetan in, in 1697. We then shifted to the Spanish conquest led by Pedro de Alvarado, with battles in the Kichi region, before discovering the Spanish created their first capital, Ismay, which was moved due to uprisings and natural disasters, with Antigua becoming the first Spanish capital. We found out that the city of Antigua showcases some of the most beautiful Spanish colonial architecture with cathedrals and courtyard style houses. We looked at the importance of the Spanish in influencing the architecture in Guatemala, particularly in Antigua, where vibrant courtyards and Baroque-style buildings are prevalent, and we highlighted this city as a must-visit. We briefly spoke of the lesser-visited Quetzaltenango, a pivotal Spanish centre for trade just northwest of Lake Atalan, and we discovered the quest for independence by Central American leaders, including those from Guatemala, and how they signed the Act of Independence of Central America. We found that Augustin de Itabide took the stage, declaring himself Emperor of Mexico in 1822, before being dethroned with the Federal Republic of Central America taking its place before folding in on itself in 1838-40. to we then went on to the post-Federal Republic era of Guatemala, which found itself divided between liberals and conservatives. Rafael Carrera emerged as a conservative leader, defending the nation but ruling with an iron fist. Architecturally, the, tran the landscape transitioned from the Spanish influences to the neoclassical and romantic styles. We learned of a CIA-backed coup in 1954 to overthrow Jacob Arbenas, which altered the Guatemala's political tra trajectory and helped Guatemala erupt into civil war in 1960. And we found out that this civil war would last for 36 years, leaving a legacy of trauma and social divisions. Looking at the 21st century, we found that Guatemala faces challenges of inequality, crime and climate change. Amidst the struggles, the country remains a significant producer of fruits, coffee and cardamom, as well as textiles, and modern buildings and infrastructure projects are shaping the landscape of Guatemala's future. Finally, as we wrap up this journey through Guatemala's history, we see a nation evolving, confronting its past and forging ahead to hopefully 
there is a bright and optimistic future. It's a truly wonderful country, which is crazy to think when you hear about all the turmoil, but don't let the turmoil stop you going because the people are incredibly friendly. In fact, I'd say they're some of the friendliest people I have ever met and the landscapes are truly stunning. The jungle scenes, the teakau sites, the beaches are beautiful. You have the volcano heights to take on. It's truly an incredible country to explore. So make sure you go, go and get lost, go and meet the people, go and enjoy the food, go and have an incredible time there and let me know what you think because it really does have something for everybody. Architecture, stunning landscapes and even an outrageous nightlife. So that's it for today's episode and then I would like to finally say join us next time because I think I'm going to take on Nicaragua and we'll discover the complex history of this country and find out why its national sport is baseball. But until then, happy exploring everybody and I hope you have a great day.